Hello and welcome to the Chicana Code Switchers podcast. Your co-hosts are Ariana and Patricia. We are both Chicana scholar practitioners in higher education. Each episode, we discuss insights, tips, and resources for students and practitioners in higher education with a focus on social justice and platicas. With that being said, let's start this episode. Hi, everyone. It's nice to connect again. I hope you're all doing well in, during this COVID uh, pandemic that we're all going through, staying safe and wearing your masks and washing your hands. I don't think we've had a most recent check-in, so I think this is going to be like a long check-in for me personally. Um, I forget what was the last thing I said in this podcast episode or what I shared, but I don't think I formally shared here that I accepted a position at San Jose State uh, to be an academic advisor at the College of Social Science. So I'm excited um, to be at a campus where there's really cool people there. A lot of people are living in San Jose for some reason um, in terms of the people that I've been following or the people that I've been trying to connect with. A lot of artists, um, a lot of activists, a lot of scholar activists. And so um, pretty excited to be back in the Bay Area, just closer with family. I think there has been a very um, tough summer just in general. Um, being able to, I mean, I had to finish graduate school back home with my parents under a pandemic, all virtual. I had to finish writing my two thesis chapters. That was super hard to like do in a home environment. Um, my parents are the kind of like the family structure is that, you know, you don't really have your own space to write or something. They like want to talk to you, engage. Um, and also during that time I had to, my sister, I've, I think I've mentioned this before here in this platform or somewhere, um, maybe on Instagram live or something, my sister, almost five years ago, um, had a car accident and had a traumatic brain injury. Um, she had a long months of process of recovery. But since then, she has had like really big up and down. I think this summer, uh, once my grandma from my mom's side got hospitalized due to health, I don't know exactly what the diagnosis was, but she also was having, you know, psychological you know, things that were happening also health wise. So she was hospitalized for over a week. And then my sister down spiraled and was just having a mental health crisis. And so I think that was the part where as a family, it was, it was very challenging while having everything else happening at once. So um, I had to learn how, like, like what are the processes to, do an intervention or like, I'm like, how do you like, um, ingresar a alguien to a, like a mental health hospital or things like that. Um, she was just like in a point where it was just so dangerous that we didn't want her to leave her by herself, but she was also not coming home. So she spent days like outside, like we didn't know where she was. We kept hearing stories from coworkers, friends, like all these things where we we're just like, it was very concerning and it was a very tough, you know, time for my family and especially my mom, because she has a very sensitive, um, uh, what is it called? Like nervous system. Entonces le da panicos, le da like, she has hypertension, all these things. So 
it was like a really hard time for her. And we, at one point, were able to, I mean, the cops basically intervened. Unfortunately, nothing bad happened, but she was having an episode. And we took her to the emergency room and had her evaluated with the 5150 um, code, which which means that that code means for someone who is who you're trying to get assessed in, but does, is refusing to seek professional help themselves, um, and you are in belief that they're either a danger to themselves or a danger to others. Um, I think it was harder to navigate all of this just with parents in general. I felt like I was like five years old or like a little kid again, where you kind of have to translate to your parents like all these things. Um, just to have them understand it. And also I was like working and going to school, like trying to finish my job applications at that time. So it really is a point where scholars, like especially scholars of color, um, never are just one thing. We are multiple things at once and we're always writing under crises. Um, Along with other students that we're serving, we're also, you know, trying to stop fires in their lives as well. So it was... It was very, it was a dark time, um, especially going into this pandemic. And um, afterwards, she got diagnosed uh, with bipolar disorder. So trying to figure out like what that means, just because um, with her injury, um, you can actually develop other things. And so for her, she got, she was in a, she was, estaba internada. And from that point on, I think she's a lot better um, but I think it was, it was definitely challenging being at home and then starting a new position under those conditions um, and still being trained and having like spotty Wi-Fi. And now I'm in a new apartment. So that has been a lot better. Um, I, it, like one of my aunts was saying like, todo esto pasó somehow, some way with all of these things happening. And she's like, I am so glad that you were there in order to help them process it. Um, because if I would have been in a normal circumstance, I would have been in Fresno four hours away. And it was, it would have been even harder to help my parents, um, try to get my sister to get help and for them to also get help. Um, entonces, like after that, like transition and now I'm like, um, I moved into a new apartment in the Bay area. And so I think now las cosas están medio calmadas, but I'm like, you're still kind of like anticipating, I'm like, when's going to be the next crisis, right? Especially under this administration, there's like so many things that it's like your own personal crisis, but also you feel for your, your friends' crises too. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, that's a lot that you've been going through for the past month or so. And I'm really glad to hear that you, that things have calmed down a bit and are more under control and, you know, it's especially hard um, given COVID and, you know, the constant news and constant things that are coming up, you know, in the world. And just in general, like you're, you know, like you're, you're the normal things that anger you, you know, just add to the pile of things that you have. And so I think it's really important for us to, you know, for anyone who's out there, like going through this experience, it's super hard to like be able to be open about it to other people just because you're just like, nunca, nunca separa, right? Like it's one thing after another and you're often like times it's not safe to disclose that to people either in the workplace or at school or, you know, with any colleagues just because I'm like, 
some people just don't get it or some people just provide like this empty like sympathy that you're just like I it's hard for us to share and be vulnerable to share these things because it's a very personal like experience when you're when you're actually going through it in the middle right Mm -hmm. exactly yeah well congratulations on your new home and finally making the move and having better (laughs) (laughs) wi-fi I think that is like the baseline is uh, like as we're we've been talking about like just internet connection and just audio and technology and stuff like that I think that's what when we're talking about people who are having a hard time, you know, accessing strong Wi-Fi, like it, it also includes us, right? It's also mm-hmm. including people who are organizing, people that are trying to get into grad school or undergrad or or, or transitioning education with their own children or the the people that they're parenting. Um, it's just it's just challenging. But other than that, like, how have you been, Adiana? Yeah, I've been busy, surprisingly. I want to say surprisingly because I'm not used to being at home um, doing work. But I um, started a new class um, through Johns Hopkins that I found on Facebook. So that's been, we had our first class today. So that was interesting. Uh, We read this book called Tell Me How It Ends, um, 40 Questions an essay in 40 questions. And that was um, talking about the detention centers and kids um, being, um, you know, kids immigrating from Latin America, Central America, through Mexico, up to the border in the U.S. And um, what, you know, asking them about their experiences to help them, you know, um, get asylum. Um, Back in 2014, so... Uh, that's been an interesting read and um, continuing to apply to jobs um, and finally hearing back for some interviews and um, going on my daily walks, <laughs> eating delicious food at home um, has been has been good. I've been prioritizing my health and my happiness, so definitely channeling that every day you know um and drinking lots of water um has been has been good and just um like everyone else just trying to stay positive and um I think just just spending being grateful every day for what we have and making the most of every day so I think for me that's been my the my state of being these past few months and and like you moving back to California you know like and making that um, decision and going through that process and and it it all takes a lot of energy so definitely making time for self-care going to the pool going to the beach and that's something that I love about California is that the beaches and the national parks and the local regional parks are here and my friends are here so I get to do that a little bit um now that I'm back yeah that's that's pretty good I think that's the that that has been like the time for you know when we're talking about a gap year or anything like that or gap years that we're taking um it's so super interesting how all of us end up doing the most growth outside of academia instead of in it 
So um, it's really good to to be able to take that class with you. The what is it called? Latinx immigration and literature. Mm-hmm. Um, it, like I, that's the one thing I don't miss is being in class and like people just don't get it, and I'm just like, oh, like, or bringing in some comments that are like really irrelevant. That is the one thing I don't like, which doesn't change in an online platform. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really nice to see that you're finally able to like just calm down and just be able to enjoy your time here in California back here. It's nice to be on the same time zone. It yes. doesn't change anything because we're still virtually meeting. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I remember you mentioning that in one of our episodes about how we've always how we've been doing virtual uh, calls and recordings and connecting. Um. So this is just now the norm. Today we have a, uh, we're going to cover a much more in depth on the process of writing a master's thesis. And also, I I believe just to be able to give people an idea of um, a chapter by chapter kind of explanation and also for me to share my own thesis, like um, findings and information. Uh, it's more like a personal account with Ariana adding um, thoughts or questions and also um, an opportunity for us to just talk about just research and master's thesis and or just master's in general, like the experience of going through it, um, just because I feel like um, some students, because we covered already um, in the previous episode some master's experiences and writing about their findings I think it would be important to also cover this topic um, in our in our podcast yeah exactly and we were discussing how our programs were different based on this institution that we attended and how it could be helpful to provide some examples and descriptions and go a little bit more in depth in order to provide context for anyone who's interested in in a master's program and things to consider now that we've both gone through this process. Yes, and I and I think it's important to start off by um, if you are looking to um, start a a master's program or go back into a master's program. Um, I think the one thing when I was looking at master's programs is I didn't ask or didn't know to look into asking the program coordinators. Um, like what is the culminating um, experience that is required in the program or what are the options? I think that's going to be really important for any new income I mean, student to start asking yourself because that will tell you um, what the options are for yourself and also if it matches for you your long-term plans and if this is a, a good professional development um, opportunity And also to know if you're going to gain any support. I think as we've mentioned in our, in our previous podcast, like the experience of not having a support through um, putting together all of these, either like for us, it was mostly thesis was really challenging to actually be able to, I mean, all of these experiences are, can be challenging. I think even harder if you don't have the support that you're, you're looking for. So for us, it was more, trying to find out the information of just like the whole process, you know, like getting information about what is required, what are the next steps. It wasn't very clear for us or we were told 
how it would be, especially if you're, since all of us were first generation college students and even more so first gen graduate students um, doing research. So in some of the master's programs, I think it's important to talk about what could be your culminating experience. Um, for some of the people who are doing undergrad, um, some people do like a, a honors thesis, that's what it's called, or capstone or a portfolio. Um, and in some business um, classes, you do like a full-on project presentation um, or a, for my program, since I decided to do a special concentration, for mine was a strategic plan that we worked on just this one in your last semester and you present it to the class or present it to the organization or corporation uh, business, um, giving them like actual uh, strategic planning, um, like uh, advice. Um, and so it depends on what you're doing, but master's is similar in a sense, but the difference is that you can actually, um, part of the experiences that you may have, you might actually do. The most common one that you get to hear, especially if you're considering doing a, a doctorate program, is doing a master's thesis. Um, a thesis or the um, comms exam, so that one is usually an examination based on your field where you get um, prompts and you have to answer some of them and there's a timeline and guidelines on that writing experience or sometimes it's an actual test where you like bubble in Um, it depends on the field that you're in Um, for a lot of the the research on that one is most student first gen students don't pass Um, and so I mean if you're if you're you kind of have to like ask your program okay. to see any examples of what that comms exam would, would entail. But it's basically testing you the curriculum and the information that you've learned in your program. And then they, it's, it's cumulative. So like you're going to pull from different classes and different topics and then write about it. And then you have uh, a timeline on it. Um, another... another- thing that you could probably um, do is maybe a portfolio, like a work portfolio or a project. Um, that's, those are the ones that I've heard. Um, depending on what other master's programs you have, they might have been something different or none of these at all. Um, Adriana, could you tell us like how your master's program, like what was your um, expectation at the end of your, your master's program? Yeah, so mine is more of a professional program. That's why it's called an EDM, what we obtain at the end, Uh, meaning that it was nine months and it was mostly just classes that we took in two semesters. Um, And I did not have a thesis or a research project or any of that uh, as my culminating experience or takeaway from my program and I knew that coming in because my friend had done the program but I did go in with the intent of obtaining research experience as best as I could within the classes that I enrolled in and I did take a statistics class um, just to refresh my memory on how to do statistical analysis and just get up to par with that type of research And within my classes, I focused on the um, research that interested me or the possibility of a PhD program. 
So within my uh, history of higher education, I focus on the history of, of undocumented students in higher education. Um, within my, uh, what is it, pro-seminar class, I did again, it was around undocumented students writing a memo to the president. And, and then in my, what was it, um, immigration policy class with Dr. Roberto Gonzalez, it was a group project which focused on the graduate school experience for undocumented graduate students. And we realized there wasn't really much um, research on that topic, on the graduate student experience specifically. There's a lot of research on undergraduates and the numbers of, of students entering higher ed, but not so much like master's and PhD level. So that was what I did within my program. Yeah, and then those professional schools, um, I think it's really important for us to if we're thinking about long term, a doctorate or even more research experience, I think um, that's when you get part of like the elitism comes in and the challenge of um, students actually being able to give opportunities or be accepted into PhD programs. If you're thinking about the traditional way that students have gained research experiences. And so um, for a lot of the times, if you're thinking about going into a selective school, it is important that you consider doing a master's program that has a thesis. Um, although some people have mentioned, you know, like it, you don't necessarily need a thesis to do a doctorate. But I think you also have to consider if you don't have research experience in your undergrad, I think it would be really, really important for you to do a master's thesis, although it, it will be challenging um, if you've never done research before to, you know, take on a project like this big. Um, and so it's, it's important for you to consider the ins and outs, the cons and pros of what is the graduate program that you're considering taking. And if not, you know, you can still take and see if maybe if you don't want to do a thesis, if you can take a research and methods class that would allow you to at least do a lit review, uh, a literature review, so you can actually provide that as your writing sample for one of your applications for PhD programs. Um, but that that's the part where you you have to really look at PhD or master's programs in the curriculum and the, and the class requirements that they have and the kind of flexibility that it will allow you to gain the necessary skills for you to do research. Um, I think for me it was important because my master's program didn't have a lot of ethnic studies classes or conversations about research methods in a ethnic studies lens or anything like that or any of the skills or, or theories I, that I used. Um, I joined an association to help me network and just see how people implemented that theory. Um, the cool thing about the national organization or the organization that I that I am a member of, um, they do a really good job of trying to help and mentor upcoming grad students into really um, helping them either through their dissertation and their master's thesis to just um, bring in more people into the field. Um, for mine, it's critical race theory. So I do a lot of, um, actually all of my research projects have been using critical race theory, but the way that I was trying to use it in this thesis project 
was a little bit more challenging to conceptualize. And so it was really helpful to learn how other people even embedded or used two different types of theories for their um, theoretical analysis in their, in their masters. So other than like these big words about, you know, the intimidation of doing research in general, I think for me, the headspace that I went into deciding to do a master's thesis was knowing that um, I had to look at other people's master's thesis to get a sense of what the writing style is because it's a very different platform and a different uh, way of writing that most of us aren't used to uh, writing and also trying to also not be so elitist and be like all this jargon and all these words. Um, It also depends on you and how you want to write your master's thesis. So I think the best advice is that even with a dissertation, you know, a master's thesis or a dissertation, the best kind is the one that's done. So um, knowing that a lot of people know this is that you're in your last year um, and a lot of people know that you're, you're put into stress and you have to produce something while trying to also get a job at the same time um, during that year. So I think not putting ourselves that pressure from the beginning, I think it would be helpful and also trying to be as authentic as you can with your writing and your vision of writing it, trying to own it. I think that was the challenging part is learning how to write a thesis while also trying to write academically and also try to make it my, my own. Um, it's really, really hard because you're learning different skills. Um, so when I was reading other people's thesis and, and I asked my thesis advisor for examples, so he was able to forward some of his previous thesis that he, he advised on. And a lot of them didn't have the writing style or the uh, content that I would want to write. And so that was important for me to just know like, okay, it's not that hard, you know, like it's just trying to break it up this big, big, huge project into smaller chunks that was able to, for me to like, know, okay, it's not as intimidating as I thought it was. It's just a huge, huge paper <laughs> that you just spend a long time, you know, in day in and day out staring at and writing and doing. Um, so it was really helpful to just read and also it was helpful to read other dissertations. Um, so that's what I started first is really looking at dissertations and looking at their lit review and their work cited uh, pages or references to just see who they were citing. And that helped a lot with just trying to see what kind of articles I could use, because that was the big challenging part is trying to um, find research articles that talked about my own topic, just because there wasn't that many at all. Like there actually wasn't any relating to the topic that I was talking about it in a way that I was. So for folks that didn't know what my thesis was, um, my title of my thesis is Writing Equity is Not Enough, a Case Study of the Graduation Initiative 2025 Implementation on a California State University Campus. So in different words, it's a research project where I was looking at the California State University system in one particular campus. It was a case study. So that's one a case study is basically you're looking at a particular thing at a particular time and trying to analyze it. So um, you also have to figure out when you're writing your thesis, how you're going to conduct your methods. I think that's 
that's the part where you kind of figure out what's the best way to investigate the thing that you're trying to research about. Um, in my particular case, it made a lot more sense doing a case study. Um, I've noticed that a lot of my peers, some of them didn't use the right methods to do their research and they got called out in one of the presentations, which was also shitty because I'm like, if your advisor had guide you better, it would be better. So I think that's the, that's one of the challenges of doing a thesis is knowing how to conduct it. And so that's usually where some research and methods classes cover, but actually not all of them. Um, when I was doing this, my professor didn't really, wasn't the best person to start discussing any of this. So it was a lot of my research, um, my thesis advisor and I, and also my previous experience being in McNair and reading and watching other people's uh, research that was helpful for me to determine what was the best move. And so if you feel intimidated about doing this, it's completely normal because it took me four years to be able to be this comfortable to do this. And I've done three different, actually four different research projects before. So um, if this, any of this doesn't make any sense, it's okay. It's a different kind of world that you have to get used to um, putting it together. Yeah. And I was reading in um, preparation for this podcast, just um, examples on Google that you can easily look up about tips on writing a master's dissertation or a thesis or a research project. And what they say is, um, to begin early, right? You were saying, Patricia, that you it's taking you four years to get to this point, but it's a, a work in progress. Uh, so definitely start early and start thinking about it. Uh, for example, here it says, like you mentioned, Patricia, you can find and read many articles and books on creating a successful thesis. Um, it's a great way to motivate yourself for writing, for your future writing. And you can also ask your instructor for any resources that may be helpful. And um, yeah, it's better to get prepared beforehand to create a good document on time. Um, and I guess to your point about the different programs as well is to define the goals of writing your thesis, right? Uh, it takes a long time. So it's important to select an interesting topic. And in some of the examples that they use, and I'm using the it's called prothesiswriter.com, um, is your goal to receive a degree. You need to choose a difficult topic that is manageable to write about to feel satisfied with the work. So select an interesting topic that attracts you. It must be something you can research for long without getting bored or to get a particular job. So if you already decided where you want to work after studying, then select a topic connected with the sphere or um, to make a useful paper for people. So select a topic that will be something new so I feel like yours is more like around I, I feel like yours is the fourth bullet because you wanted it to be useful for other people to use as a resource in in your goal yeah and you also bring up a really good point like you in order for you to think about like how can I best use how can I best as utilize my time in the thesis, um, it really depends on you. Um, I think a lot of people were going to tell you all this like advice about here's how traditionally a thesis has been used for, for everything else. But ultimately, I think 
this thesis should be about you, should be about what you feel, um, follow your intuition about this, because a lot of people start saying like, well, they go into like a very capitalistic way of explaining advice on future thesis students, which I, I think it's important to know and be aware of, but I don't think it's necessarily always the best advice, depending on what you want it to be. Um, I use this thesis as something that I was genuinely curious about. Um, I found that there was a gap in the literature about this. Um, and I also found that it was something that would help me prepare long-term for my long-term career professional goals. So I use this thesis as an opportunity to professionally develop of what is out there. And also my research participants were as an opportunity for me to connect with and see like, okay, if I ever in the future wanted to be, because I my participants were administrators, um, this is the way that I would see it doing. I also had experience in the topic because I was in student government by the, when the time of this uh, in, initiative was implemented. And I felt that this initiative could have been so powerful, but the more I was researching about the topic in general and how other CSUs were implementing it, the more I thought, well, this is, this is not right. You know, I need people to be aware of, and you know, it's kind of like when you're, you think about research as kind of like your journalism in a sense, where what is something that you're very, very curious about that you don't see other people talking about and you want to expose or shed light to, or it's a me search research where you research yourself and you're trying to, you know, find out something about you that will help you understand your particular circumstance, your experience or something like that, where you want to see that in your participants as well. Um, I use participants and I did a qualitative, so I did research interviews. Um, other people may do surveys or um, do quant and do more surveys in like just looking at data or um, demographic data or things like that where they don't really necessarily meet the person uh, or the people that they're trying to research. So it's up to you to determine like what is it that you're really genuinely curious about I use this thesis as both those things and thinking long-term, I see myself being a leader or doing a leadership position. So this would help me understand what would, what would be the best way to implement an initiative to help, you know, minoritized students improve their experience in education. Um, the initiative in general, what the goal was. So for those of you who don't know, um, the graduation initiative 2025 um, was implemented not so long ago in the in the system where they the main goal and the people that highlight a lot if you're even if you search it up like on the news or something like that you want to see um, they wanted to work on the graduation rates for first year and transfer students and this is the first time that an initiative actually includes transfers for the CSU system um, and then also they wanted to um, uh, address the specifically the eliminating the equity gaps for minoritized students. They call them underrepresented. I made the shift of calling them minoritized and I talk about it in my thesis of reasons why. Um, the research study is a qualitative case study of one of the CSU campuses. I'm not gonna name them, but most people can figure out which one it was. Um, this study examined how student and academic affairs administrators implemented the GI 2025 at a respective Hispanic serving institution, 
CSU campus, specifically as it relates to equity. Um, by utilizing critical race theory and interest convergence in the data analysis findings indicated that the administrators experienced a variety of challenges to implementation faced with unrealistic expectations and engaged in performative equity. So that's part of my abstract that I wrote. Um, and the way that I first started writing um, so it goes by abstract and then it goes a thesis um, title page. And after that, it gives you information about who my committee was. So I think it's important to, I, I made it a point to find, I mean, everybody can refer back to the previous episode of why I chose the chair of my thesis committee. Um, but he was really good at like um, finding out, um, he, he worked in uh, education leadership and was, really good at just um, doing lat crit and also critical race theory. So he was very perfect to have in my th uh, as my chair as well. Um, I chose two other members. They were both undergraduate um, professors um, and I made it a point to include some ethnic studies professors because I think they also had a really good um, experience being uh, working with administrators and doing leadership programs and also working with predominantly students of color. Um, so um, Dr. Larissa Mercado-Lopez, we've mentioned her previously in this episode, in this podcast. Uh, she is a professor in women's studies. And then Dr. Cristina Herrera is the former chair of the Chicano and Latin American studies, um, all of them at Fresno State. So um, they also pointed out in my, when I did my thesis defense, the importance of like how intentional I was with creating a, a thesis committee that also included my own recommendations in this thesis where it was important for me to cross collaborate and be interdisciplinary in the way that I was viewing also this research where I was collaborating with other folks to engage them in a work where usually a lot of administrators or higher ed policy or things like that are only talked to other higher ed professionals. And it was um, different for them to have been included in those conversations because those are departments that are not always included in conversations where it talks about big um, higher ed institution policies. So, because um, I think we all get siloed into our own specific specialization and you don't get to collaborate uh, in other places which is something that I find interesting because I'm like that's what they ask in grad apps all the time like or even job professions like how good are you at collaborating with other with other people and across campuses and also um, I wanted to talk about this post from uh, an Instagram from diversity in academia that mentioned it was a tweet by Dr. Jonathan Rosa. Uh, you can find them on Twitter. Um, and they talked a lot about how students um, are always told about. So the tweet is, I don't know who told students that the goal of research is to find some previously undiscovered research topic, claim individual ownership over it, and fiercely protect it from theft. But that almost sounds like, well, colonialism, capitalism, and policing. When developing research topics, don't just identify quote-unquote gaps in the literature and reduce your efforts to filling them in. That's disrespectful to yourself and the work. And stuff, instead, interrogate the function of particular scholarly avoidances and erasures. What, whose interests do they serve? So I inadvertently did that 
by creating and seeing like why aren't people because most of the research always interviewed students so whenever I talked about equity gaps or graduation rates all of these were very individualized problems in the literature I made it a point to interview administrators instead of students because my chair also said why don't you interview students and I'm like I don't want to interview students because we can find that data already in a sense and also I am not interested to put the burden on students trying to come up with the answer that they didn't put themselves in. It was administrators. So I think it was, for me, an important thing to highlight. Why aren't more administrators being um, interviewed and asked and held accountable, even through research, about something that they're in charge of implementing? Um, and you get a chance to write your dedication. That's uh, at the beginning of your thesis. You can write really whatever you want. Um, usually students reserve that towards the complete end when you're all in your feelings and <laughs> close to a breakdown uh, because you're almost done. And after that, it's the acknowledgments. Usually this is the part where you acknowledge your committee, the people that helped you. Um, and this is where you can actually write in your own actual voice and it doesn't necessarily have to be academic um, and you can make it as long as you want. From the table of contents, um, you have a list of tables. So if you use any tables, you would include that in your, in your table of contents, a list of figures. If you have any figures, you include that in there. And then it goes by typically your master's thesis has um, one, two, I did five chapters um, and some students decide to have a sixth chapter. Um, and this is where you need to meet with your, your thesis chair to organize what would be the best style to write based on your, your discipline, your research study, and yourself. Um, I think the hardest part of this thesis is also trying to own up to my writing and saying like, I am the scholar, I am the writer. I get to write it in the way that I want to. And so it's a, it's a collaboration with both. So if you find yourself at your chair, is kind of just like telling you how to write it because they want to write it in a specific way. Um, I think it's important to ask them like, why would that be a thing? And also they should give you more, in my perspective, they should give you more of uh, flexibility and say like, oh, you want to write it? Okay, let's do it this way. Um, and your committee could also back you up in that too. Um, I decided to do, just do five chapters. Uh, one of my friends did six and included a chapter because it made sense for their research um, and they titled it completely different. Um, I've seen other people. I included my um, theoretical framework in chapter three. Um, and some people actually have their own separate chapter just talking about their theoretical framework. Um, it really depends, again, on your chair and how they approve it. But other than that, or you're even your school, some schools have a specific guidelines of where things should be at. You want to check in with your, probably your graduate research study division department, whatever they are, whoever's looking at your thesis, you want to look at their page to see their policies and their template. Um, at Fresno, they had already this thesis template. So I had to just include some of these things in there. I did include sections that made sense for me, but it, there's no specific sections in the content. It was just the chapters of where it's supposed to be um, in, the, in the template of like the style. So chapter one is the introduction. 
So chapter one is an opportunity for you to, it depends on what your topic is, but really chapter one is how you showcase, it's like another version of the lit review without talking about research studies. Um, In my chair, he said, if you were to like look at news articles on your topic, like what would they talk about? Basically, that's how he framed it. And that helped me put into in a different way than the literature. So the introduction, I use more of the research articles. And also for my topic, it made sense to for me to talk about the previous initiatives that the CSU had been a part of. So that's why in my chapter one, it seems more of like a, um, a news article put together because I wanted to concept. This is where you conceptualize your research topic specifically on why and how it came to be. Um, I would also recommend people to uh, read the book or use the book, How to Write a Master's Thesis, um, the third edition by Yvonne and Bui from from the University of San Francisco. Um, I'll include that one in the show notes because that one helped me to to realize like how, what would be the best way to write your chapter one? Um, Because they mentioned both quantitative and qualitative, like what are the two directions that those kind of studies and then also includes mixed methods. So if you were to decide to do your research topic or your research in, in those ways and in those kind of methods, it would help you know how to write your chapter one. And the, the cool thing about that book and, and I, I rented it and I looked at, there's some writing exercises. So if you're stuck, they kind of put you like, here's how you write it. And also they give you advice on when you should get in contact with your chair um, my chair was a lot more informal, so we actually were always talking and meeting. Um, you might have a chair that's a little bit more absent, um, depending on the school that you're going to. Like, and, and I know for a fact, like the UCs, it's a lot harder to get a hold of your, your professors or your committee. Um, but it would be important for you to read that book first so you know how to structure your chapter one. So for me, I did um, an introduction of the topic. And this is where I included also the statement of the problem, the purpose of the study, why the need for the study, my research question. Um, and this is where I defined also big terms that I use on the, on, the, on the topic. I included my limitations, the summary, and also a preview of succeeding chapters. Uh, for my chapter two, this is where you look at more of research studies um, and research literature or um, what is it called? Like the, just like any research article that you can find in a database where it's um, preliminary research. Um, this is where you want to put the chapter one, you can do secondary uh, research or um, secondary sources. Chapter two, you want primary sources only. So when you're looking at bringing up a topic, you need to find that author or that researcher, that scholar that wrote it first, because that's where you need to pull them in. How do you know if it's the first or not? That means you need to read a lot of literature to know, like, in your topic, who would you know? And I think this is the part where it's even more intimidating because other scholars could call you out on it and say, well, this person is actually, so you, I would refer it to me like, you know, on Twitter or social media, when someone takes someone else's credit and says, oh, that person was the one who 
you know, brought up that topic or pro- uh, made it popular, but the actual first content creator was someone else. Well, this is where people are going to call you out on it if you actually don't know what you're talking about. So you do want to spend some time reading a lot of articles and trying to find out who are the experts in particular topics. Because my research topic didn't have an actual research in the way that I was writing it, I had it divided into different topics in the literature. So uh, when I was reading a lot of things, I had to include research on graduation rates. I had a, I decided to include research on institutional accountability because that was important for me um, to know how like our institutions held accountable and especially administrators, if there's any literature on that. I did research on equity in higher education And it also was important for me to include minority-serving institutions because I was emphasizing that this was an HSI and graduating students of color. Those were, there were articles on those two things. And then I just included a summary after that of the chapter to just, and this is where a lot of students read the summaries. This is why summaries are also important because it gives you a quick synopsis to see if this is a study that you would want to include in your research or not. Uh, For chapter three, it was a theoretical framework and and methodology. So I included all my methods, basically. I included the purpose of the study again. I did my theoretical framework. What was I using? I used uh, critical race theory and specifically interest convergence um, because it made sense for the the topic that I made. And you have to justify it. Basically, this method section is if someone else were to replicate the study, and I think more thesis students could also find an opportunity. So if you don't want to create something completely new or, um, or you don't have to recreate the wheel, you can actually look at research articles or studies or dissertations or thesis where they have already done this thesis, but you want to replicate it again. So if you were to replicate it when you're writing this, you want to state how you conducted the research. Um, and you want to include the purpose. And I think the, the logic between you having to justify and include all of this is for other people to understand um, and catch you if you either did something unethical or if it were to be replicated. Now I understand what exactly you were going through. And I think it's you had to be very detailed in how you wrote because no one is in your head. And I think that's the hard part if you're having a hard time writing. Uh, writing this piece because other people should come in and read it and be able to replicate your study um, 10 years later or things like that. So you want to be very specific on what you used, how you used it, and um, any suggestions too. Like you can include um, if there was something that you would have done a little bit different or some issues that you had, limitations, you want to include that in there. So other people who may do it in the future can know, okay, don't do this, do this instead. Um, and then I used my methodology. So basically it was qualitative. And then the procedures, what did I do? My research, I, I included that specifically because I wanted people to know what were what was specific about the research site that I used um, to find like the factors um, and the criteria needed for the research site to match what I wanted to do. Um, the sampling was important, instruments, data analysis, and pos- I, I included a section of my positionality of the researcher. Some people call it the reflexibility or reflexive something, algo así, uh, where basically you mentioned what are your biases and how they would come across in your paper. Um, and I'll talk a bit more about 
what I included in mine. Um, and then my summary. In chapter four, you're going to have your findings. So for me, I included my themes. So I named each section based on my themes. And you can display your findings however your chair and you decide to do it. I made it so I can just include the themes. Other people just do an introduction and just go straight to the to the to their themes i decided to break it up in this way just because it made more sense for me and i'm like thinking if someone were to read it i think it would be easier for them to find my stuff um and i included a summary in my chapter five so the findings is just you describing everything that you found and then your chapter five that's where you have a discussion and this is where you analyze your findings um in chapter four you're literally just listing quotes uh themes and how this all, like, why are those themes and how did it show up for all your participants? Uh, for chapter five, it's your discussion, your limitations, and recommend. I decided to include recommendations, and I included recommendations for both research, and I also included recommendations for practice. So that's something completely different that I didn't see that many thesis right on, on it. And then summary. Um, and then at the bottom, you have your references. So this is where you want to actually, if you're starting your thesis, you want to go straight to the references. Uh, you're going to want to go first abstract, then chapter five, or whatever their findings and discussion is. Want to include that so you can see the summary, see if this makes sense for you. Then go to references, see what kind of articles they have. You might actually, I found a dissertation that I was able to pull a lot of articles from for my, for my literature. And then you cite them in there. The appendices just include basically any of your invitation to letters, so you can see I included this. Some people don't. Um, I So if anybody knew, wanted to know, like, how did you write your invitation letter, you can include that. That one will be sent. Any of these forms, you basically also submit your methods and these forms, uh, your appendices, to your IRB. So the IRB is a step you have to do before you actually come into contact with your research participants or how you are collecting your data if you are having to interact with humans. Basically, because someone exploited and did terrible things to other people, this is a procedure that higher ed does in order to make sure that you're doing things ethically and that the rights of the participants are, um, are uh, met. And also, if participants are being treated unfairly, they have a contact info on your institution to basically report. Um, and so I included my consent form that I use for my RB and the interview questions that I have. Some studies I've noticed that they don't actually put the interview questions, which sucks because then you're, you're having a hard time kind of knowing what kind of questions you can ask for your participants. But I included those in mind um, for anybody who would want to. And also I have a list of um, things like that for my whole study. So, um, Ariana, do you have any questions or anything um, from anything? I mean, just defining what the IRB is, um, it stands for Institutional Review Board, and it is exactly what you said to review the, the ethics, the methods of your research, and just to make sure everything's um, transparent, right? And, and it's based on um, a previous research that took place where things, ethics were not respected and especially when interacting with humans and things like that. 
But yeah, and it becomes really important, especially for working with vulnerable populations mm-hmm. um, and for people to also the IRB to call you out or give you recommendations of saying, well, I don't think if you are interviewing a specific population, maybe you need to bring in um, translations. Do you have that? Um, how are you going to prepare for this, these different scenarios? Um, for a lot of, especially I think now there's this huge popularity of researching undocumented people. It's really important for even researchers to start thinking, well, how are you going to store your data? And that's what they want to know, too. Like, how are you protecting the data and the participants and their confidentiality and whatever they're revealing to you? Um, In particular, for undocumented students, it's important for you to really think about how are you really protecting their their identity and their whatever they're like they're trying to tell you or their information. Um, And it gets more complicated. So if you're going to store things, how are you going to store it? And if not, you can also refuse to not store it, any of these things. But also, then what are your alternatives to protect the, the participants? Um, especially for interviews, it's a lot very um, important to know what kind of questions you are because they're going to tell you, like, if that's an invasive question or if this is even relates to your study. Um, because there has been researchers that have first included in their paper that they're going to do this and then they actually go and ask these participants completely something different um and if you aren't doing like human dna or samples like body samples or things like that that's more of a scientific research lab thing um and it has their own separate procedure which i don't know very much of at all um but that's usually what the irb will differentiate is what kind of information or data or things are you collecting from people mm-hmm. exactly. or if you're in, if you're not even interacting with people then you can state that and then your process should be faster mm-hmm. yeah um can you maybe share a little bit more about the findings of your research yeah so i think for me i started my research uh, my thesis writing chapter oh. one first a lot of people decide to do chapter three. It was really hard for me to write chapter three. So I decided to do chapter one and I actually did it chronologically. So this is where you kind of have to think about what is the best way for you to write it. I wrote it in, in a sense of like, which one did I feel the most up to like up to the feeling? Because I wrote these three chapters during winter break. So winter break, for all of you who don't know, is like three weeks. So I spent one week writing one chapter. So it is possible to write it in three weeks. Do I recommend it? No. Um, (laughs) But if you are in a time crunch, it can be possible if you dedicate like every day writing this. So for my chapter one, what I first started was my actual, my thesis chair sent me a newspaper article's on the California State University system, the um, this is where I was able to actually write the GI 2025 more specifically because in the literature, I could not find research articles yet published on the graduation initiative, specifically this, this one from the CSU. So this is where I was able to write more of these um, type of sources um, to just give us a sense of people like, how did this come up, come to be? Um, and I found this article of like um, this vice chancellor, assistant vice chancellor talking about um, how this is such amazing. It's really like all the newspaper articles talked about how amazing this initiative was going to be. And I wrote in my first sentence, actually, 
after the quote that I included. Um, at first glance, it is impressive that a four large four-year institution system like the California State University, um, in parentheses, CSU system, could make a shift to improve the graduation rates, not only system-wide, but in focusing on improving the graduation rates of minoritized students. In a time where the urgency of increasing the number of college graduates, and specifically for California, to complete in a global economy, a graduation initiative this ambitious came at the right time. In practice, there had been less conversations of how each of the 23 campuses have made changes to improve the graduation rates of minoritized students and how they will specifically do to achieve equity for racially minoritized students. Furthermore, educational leaders from the CSU have been less explicit about the specific barriers minoritized students experience and the concrete ways the CSU and or campuses can do to structurally remove barriers towards enrollment and degree completion of these students. Uh, demographic changes in higher education have sparked many conversations about the structural changes needed to serve a more diverse student population. Uh, from student enrollment to graduation rates, buzzwords like equity, social justice, and inclusion have been more prevalent among strategic plans and policy. However, much of what is left out of those conversations is who benefits from equity-driven policies and who is left out. Brennan and NATO um, in 2008 argued that higher education plays a special role in determining access to which individuals obtain a college education and often enable elite reproduction. Although elite reproduction focuses on individuals' access and admissions to elite institutions, this brings into question if elite reproduction is manifested in mass public systems. Notwithstanding, in recent years, policymakers' liberal approach perpetuates the notion that progress of the expansion of higher education to historically marginalized individuals alone will solve the inequities that exist in higher education. So I go on to talk about um, Aston and Aston's in 2015, they had a study on looking at like what characterizes as more of an inequitable like system. So they're looking at community colleges and how um, really in practice, the American higher education system is highly exclusionist and elitist only allowing very few students to access um, higher education. And this is due because the American system, based on different, like, countries, um, higher ed, it's seen as, like, oh, you, you can have access to get a college degree because you always have the opportunity to go back to the community college and work yourself up. That's not always the case, and this is why they're saying, like, based on state and state system conversations or even articulation or even, like, access to be able to pay for higher ed it's not always actual it, it doesn't happen because you need a lot of privilege in order to even get that and this is where i found in the lumina uh, foundation in 2019 reports that national degree completion in 2008 was 37.9 percent and in 2007 was 42.5 percent and so the degree attainment for california is actually pretty close um, but that was back in 2008 was 38.6% and in 2017 was 42% um, um, following closely to the national degree um, attainment average. So it's really important to know that in 2008 and 2017, there hasn't been that much progress in general. And this is where I go that in the CSU, the graduation initiatives. Um, for all of you who don't know, the CSU system has around been around for 60 years, um, and it has 23 campuses, and it has the highest enrollment in minority students nationally. Um, and for more than a decade, 
the CSU has turned their attention to increasing graduation rates. And they had actually been a part of two different graduation initiatives before. Um, the National Access to Success, which included a bunch of other um, systems from across the nation, like the CSU, uh, that wanted to increase the graduation initiative. Um, and this is where I include also the CSU um, in, for all of you who know, back in 2009, they actually launched one called the First Graduation Initiative, which was called, and they had different names for it. Um, and some of it was like Closing the Achievement Gap Initiative. Um, and they proud themselves then because in that initiative, they were uh, re they removed remediation. For all of those who don't, who don't know what remediation was, is... For those students who didn't meet the college level level um, classes or were uh, college ready for English writing, for freshmen, uh, for first year students, um, they they um, require that they take these classes that did not they did not receive college credit, and also did had to take more classes in order to get into the college ready level classes. So. Um, that actually made a lot of students, the, in practice, what they didn't mention is that the, the professors teaching that were not qualified to teach students how to actually be better at math. It was just busy work. And also for um, English and math, like it would be better to place them into a stretch class. So that's why the CSU now has stretch classes where they take a full year um, of math or a full year of English to get them ready um, and provide them more support in workshops um, for them to be successful in the future. Because some people might need more pace just knowing how to write or knowing how to do math. Um, and that was their big thing was that they increased their four-year or the six-year graduation rate a lot better, which was terrible to begin with. So any improvement was actually amazing. So this is why you have to be skeptic. Basically, like in my first chapter, I'm just like saying you have to be very skeptic about what is being published online about all of these things and the kind of like kudos that they give to each other. Um, because really the national graduation rates in general are so bad, so bad that like any improvement. And this is what I'm saying. Like if you previously had zero people graduating and even one or two you graduate the next year and then you're going to say we increased graduation rate by 200 percent well duh because you had nothing before you know like so i go much more in depth of what access to success initiative was and then i talk more about the specific both graduation initiatives both the previous one the first one and the second one um the biggest takeaway of my chapter one was really me understanding that i'm like how each initiative was implemented and the conversations that the CSU had about them. Um, most of them had really highly ambitious, I think the 2025 target, um, their ambition was in the big like props to them was because they had included transfer students now um, before they actually just focus on the four-year graduation rates. And they decided to do four-year and six-year for, for, for first-year students. And for transfers, they did a two- and four-year graduation rate. So they're, they're completely separate so they can see the data on them. What I found was that a lot of the CSUs were praising their transfer graduation rate because it is improving. 
this only really was able to happen because the uh, community colleges are now doing like GE certification or ADT or um, guaranteed um, admission to these four-year universities where they have all their lower GE done and they're able to go into upper um, upper GE and also their major courses. Um, A lot of the times, I mean, this is like, it's not because the CSU system did anything different. It was because the community colleges got a little bit more um, organized to help these students transfer. And then from there, these students are most likely students who are pressured to graduate or are told to graduate a specific time because they have been at the community college maybe for a long time. Um, These are like different circumstances where I'm like, I think more research on this topic would be helpful because you want to actually contextualize people to think like, don't just believe these graduation rates and think this is like amazing. There's more factors that are put in place to make this thing happen in the first place. Um, In my previous research with transfer students is that all community colleges are a minority serving institutions, but the people who are actually enrolling at a four-year or transferring are mostly white women. So we are not seeing a lot of our our Latinx students graduate or enroll. And if we are, it's mostly Latinas transferring. Um, and for other um, minority-serving institutions, it's it's our HBCUs, it's our NAPZs. Like, they're very... They're very fewer of them compared to HSIs. And so that would be also really important to know, like, how do we serve our minoritized transfer students who are actually are trying to graduate? But I'm like, this is where I, in my literature, I write really, like, is really graduation rates the best indicator of success? Um, In short answer, no, because you can graduate them. But what happens, my argument is you have to really consider what are their post-graduation plans? Um, and even our conversation that we'll have in, in our next episodes would be about college choice and really thinking about graduation rates is one thing, but really what you, how you choose the school based on your circumstance and your access to information. And also the gra- post-graduation outcomes are really important for us to both tie those two things together. That's just my commentary. Um, And my statement of the problem was that there isn't any real research viewing um, this graduation, both understanding the role of each, the student affairs side and academic affairs administrators and how they're working alongside together. I found that preliminary when I was asking around people on this initiative, no one could pinpoint me in that campus of who was doing what, And they would always mention that, you know, we have this long line battle between student and academic affairs in general, because each of them have a different vision of how to help students or what they want to do with students. Um, But it was a lot of like arguments that I saw of how people were using funding um, or the lack of having funding because the other department had funding. And so being first gen, I think this is my lens of like, if you're an institution, I would have thought that everybody would be on the same page. But in actuality, it was every different department only knowing what they're doing and working in silos and blaming the other departments saying that, well, student affairs got way too much student success dollars. 
uh, academic affairs don't have anything. And if you're talking about graduation, it should be academic affairs because we're the ones teaching them and there's not enough sections and yada, 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 you know, and not enough full-time faculty, things like that. But then student affairs is like, we only have a very small budget to actually provide services for students. And we're the ones working with mostly minoritized students because we have all the centers there um, or the programming, all the stuff. And so this is where you get into the battle of those two. Um, and I mentioned more of the problem where if we're really trying to address these supposedly like academic achievement gaps and barriers, um, how are you both collaborating or, or implementing this? And this is why I made it a point to write about interviewing those two different places. The unfortunate part is that in student affairs, um, because of leadership and controversias and interim temporary people, I was only able to interview one person. Um, and also through, it was through COVID. So this is when it was first started COVID in March. And this is where I was interviewing these administrators. It was before that time, but it was like, it was during the time that I would have been able to interview a lot more people. Um, and I interviewed the president. So the president functions as both of them. Right. Um, and the important part of interviewing the president was he had connections. Um, they had connections to the chancellor um, and to discuss with other the, the other CSU presidents about how they're each implementing. They had more insight on, on that particular um, piece. So the need for the study is because there, there wasn't any uh, really just talking about their centering their policy and also their decision making. Mm -hmm. um, and also how they thought about equity. So I particularly wanted to ask them, like, what is their definition of equity and how are they measuring equity in their graduation rates? Because that is part of the initiative, but no one had published how they're doing it. And I think that was the important part that research or you as a researcher or scholar have the opportunity to ask the tough questions um, or ask, like, what is not being asked? Um, when when people are marketing this stuff. Um, and so my research question was, um, how are student affairs and academic affairs administrators implementing um, the CSU uh, graduation initiative 2025 as it relates to um, HSI? I found that no one ever mentioned HSI, which is a huge you know, loss for a lot of our Latinx students. And especially since they, if they're not talking about HSI, then they don't know what an HSI really is. They just have the title, but not really creating their practices or seeing it that equity is in everything. And I think that's the hard part is that a lot of them talked about academic achievement gaps as a student personal problem. It's our... It's our Latinx students who just, you know, it's because they, their parents are agricultural workers. It's our Black students that are going into under-resourced schools, our Asian students. Um, we have to think about, you know, our international Asian students and then our, our Asian, like this is the convert, like this is like the stereotypes that we hear from these administrators. And so I think this is the part where it's like very deficit perspective of these students when we're talking about equity and all of them like did not know how to address the equity part. Clearly, like in their conversations, they were just like, I, we just don't know what to do, which made me kind of question. I'm like, if any of y'all had any 
imposter syndrome of knowing how to do your job or knowing how to do a new job. I can guarantee you probably have more great ideas than some of these administrators have. And so for me, that was really important for me to know um, because and then it showed then why, why things were the way that they were and how they were implemented. Um, I even had one of the participants turn around and like ask me what I thought equity was. And I was like, it doesn't matter what I think about equity. Like I need to know what you think because clearly you're going to know what I think because I'm going to write my thesis. But like, it was interesting. And I think it was also interesting to point that the CSU classifies underrepresented minority students. Um, they don't include Asian students in their definition. So they're only looking at Latinx, Hispanic, or actually they don't say Latinx. They said Latino slash Hispanic, Black slash African-Americans, and American Indians under the underrepresented minorities umbrella. So we're also missing a lot of data on Asian students, um, American Indians. I don't know how they're labeling that. And also it's, you know, challenging to also identify certain people that are, you know, they don't include biracial or multiracial students in this umbrella because they're not able to just box them in into one category. So that's, that would be really cool to have anybody who has quality, uh, quantitative um, research methods to look at how data is included because that's part of my literature. I did find that um, the way that graduation rates are calculated, like number wise, is terrible because they're they're looking at a lot of these different things through stereotypes and a very narrow minded way of collecting data. Um, but that's for another thesis or another research project for someone to do. I just mentioned it in my in my comments in my literature that that was a thing and. And minority students, I made it a point, I, one of my um, committee members actually pointed out, it's like, maybe you should, instead of calling them underrepresented, how the study was saying, or the, the CSU, how about you call them minoritized, which for any of you who don't know, it's, it's um, a term uh, that I got from um, Benitez in 2010, it's uh, to refer the process action versus noun of student minoritization. My choice of this text is, in this case assumes that there is a history of structural and institutional actions that have come over time limited access to and led to the lack of presence among students of color in higher education labeled as racially and ethnically different from the norm, which is whites. Which is, that's the part where I made an intention to write that because I wanted to point out in this thesis that the students are not the problem. It's the institution creating it through many different ways putting condition, the, these conditions onto the students, not the other way around. Um, and the limitations, yeah, I had four different limitations. So the first one was, um, I only focused on one of the 23 campuses, so there might be variations. And this is where you need to also think about in your research study, like what would be the limitations and to state them so people can understand like in future studies, other people could decide to do it at all 23 campuses or another CSU just to compare like mine. And then also the second one was um, the sample size of the study was very small. And so they don't represent all the administrators that I could have interviewed. Um, and also I had to be very specific on which it, it, leadership roles I was looking for. I was looking at the top, top. Um, I, didn't, I didn't interview AVPs. I didn't interview directors, managers, um, coordinators. So those would also be potential um, 
or even like chairs of departments. And some of them didn't make sense because they don't actually work. Interestingly enough, they don't talk about their GI 2025 in their respective job. So although administrators mentioned that everyone is, should be doing this work, everyone's kind of pointing at someone else that they should be the ones doing this work. Um, it makes more sense that the president do it. And then the president would say, well, I have my uh, provost and my um, VP of student affairs doing this work. But then the AVP would say, well, I have these people doing this work under me. And then I have these people. And so I'm like, then who is actually doing the work? And most of the time, if you find out, like, who is the most employed in the in campus is student assistants, both the undergrad and graduate level. But these are part-time, 20-hour students that do not have either the capacity, the, the decision-making, the money, the, all this stuff to actually, they're the ones coming into contact with the students, but they're not the ones who are professionally, like, either understand what student affairs is or student development, how to work with students, or in the academic side, they're just being prescriptive and not very innovative in the way that they're engaging with students. Um, or following rules of their supervisors, you know, things like that. They don't have that much autonomy um, in their respective roles. And then lastly, um, I put that there wasn't much of representation of different ethnic racial backgrounds from participants. So that was important for me to include um, because if we're looking at administrators, if we're talking about equity and student, you know, experiences, or we're, I might not be capturing the faculty that are actually talking about this. Um, and it also comes to show that it's the universities also having to look at who their administrators are and why there isn't that much, you know, representation. Um, and in the study, I was only interviewing full-time, so I wasn't interviewing part-time or temp um, or interim people because I wanted to see someone who was going to be there for a long to be able to describe what they have done, not someone who was going to be there for three, five months or just a year and then move on to something else. Um, and lastly, um, it was COVID. I was writing through COVID. I was researching through COVID. Um, and so there was a lot of things that, that I wasn't able to do. Um, and at the end, you can see probably if you read my writing, like my last two chapters, I was like, I'm just trying to finish. I'm trying to be done. And it was a very hard time writing it while everything else was going on. Um, and so, that was a summary yep. of the big long research project. When I was working at a at the at State, and this was implemented to us as academic advisors, it was a lot of pressure that they were putting on the students to graduate if they had spent more than six years and had not graduated. So for me, it was for me it was six years is a lot. I think the this should be from the beginning to graduate in four years, but it doesn't help, like you mentioned, when the CSU system or a particular CSU is not on the same terms as to what they define as equity, as what they define as graduation rate, as they don't, if they don't set like the outline or the a clear goals from the beginning and you're expecting everyone to follow this mandate, it puts a lot of pressure on the students and it also doesn't help when you don't have enough faculty to teach classes, when the students are competing with each other to enroll in the required courses, lesser major courses. So it just, it seems counterintuitive 
to their goals to um to be implementing this uh mandate when they themselves haven't figured out their own system to ensure that the students right yeah and in terms of like the who has the biggest pressure it was the students right like it was definitely um something that I'm like, you're expecting students to, and this is just commentary. This isn't what I actually wrote on my paper, but you can probably imagine me saying it because I think that's the hard part about a thesis is that you're constrained on really what you can say and what you can't say because you either have to cite it or it's like, it's just, it's not the place to, you know, write commentary about it. But I think this is why like a podcast or something is like amazing because you can actually say that. It's that, like, it's very hierarchical. The power dynamics was like, oh, well, if you don't meet it, then it's like, everyone was just like, it's so hard to address student of color um, and especially like minority students, like challenges to graduation that we're just kind of like put it to someone else. And we're just going to put the pressure on all these, you know, centers that are supposed to, or that have in contact or programs that have in contact with these students. And it's a sink or swim kind of deal, right? And so my frustration was like, if you see a lot of ethnic studies departments who, or the, even the centers that interact with most of these students, I'm like, then why aren't you asking them for their advice and their input on what's the best way to move forward? Why haven't you taken the time to research what are the barriers that students experience? More of like seeing that it's our system. I mean, I had an administrator say, we create these dis- we create these things, but they, across the board, people were not seeing it in that way. And also, I was very skeptic of that person saying that because I'm like, in the end, they actually didn't have a concrete plan on how to address. Like, you can have all this like language to talk about equity, but it doesn't mean that you actually understand it on a deep level. Like how we're mentioning, like how everyone has been saying about this pandemic, about you know everyone reading, you know all these like anti-racist books or whatnot but when it comes down to it they don't personally understand it on a a personal level like I'm the one doing this I am the one saying this and I at my job like everyone sees equity or like something else something else outside of them like they don't see because I couldn't even interview the person in charge of like the mental health and you know like the student health center the people in charge of it, because they mentioned that they did not, like the graduation initiative and what I was talking about did not, they don't do that work. And I'm like, how do you not do any of that equity work and don't see that graduation rates or um, the challenges to graduation rates is in your department? I'm like, how many times have we mentioned that students have mental health challenges that they can't, you know, graduate, they have lack of motivation, like, and your center and your job deals with that. And so people are not connecting the dots and seeing that their work, you can do equity work in anything that you do, anything. They don't have that vision because they're saying like, equity is only done in these centers. Equity can only be done in discussing in, you know, like those, like, um, like, uh, what is it called? Like the those spaces where it's just like, if it says social justice, you know, week, like that's the only time we can do social justice. You know, like people are just like putting these 
markers of like when equity should be done and not seeing that equity is everywhere. And the problem was that a lot of them were putting the, like the work on HSI and things like that on just individual people, not in the whole system. Um, And so, and they didn't even follow the six operational priorities that the CSU identified. They weren't looking at equity gaps in academic preparation. I mean, some of them mentioned it, but they never mentioned a concrete, like, this is what we will do to help have people, like, up to par, you know, like, to level up the playing field. They didn't talk about the enrollment enrollment management. Um, They talked about issues that they can't get classes. They talk about all this, like, technology that the CSU has actually invested, but not everyone on campus is using it. Like, the whole, like advisor appointment software now that they have only either some student affairs places or only some academic centers are using it but not faculty faculty are not involved in using any of those tools so they spend millions of dollars on something that they're not using the student engagement and well-being again this person not thinking that their well-being was important did not include that in there the financial support some of them have included some some stuff but they're not changing let's say in my perspective you know when you don't pay classes and the cutoff date and then they drop you from your classes they don't see that as an equity issue I'm like why don't you allow the student either payment plans or opportunities for maybe until the end of the semester you have that time to finish paying it and incrementally pay it and then you have more you know payment plans for the next semester so when you enroll or penalize you for not like you know they Either you get a registration hold or you get dropped from your classes. Like, they don't see that as an equity issue. Um, Data-informed decision-making, they're not using the correct data, first of all. And also for undocumented students, and I pointed this out, when they're looking at graduation rates, so they had the biggest issue was that they used Pell and non-Pell as indicators of who's low income. So there's huge issues on that. The first one is your assumption is that all low-income students know that FAFSA or California Dream Act exists. That's one, that's your issue. Second of all, undocumented students who apply for California Dream Act don't have Pell. So they're actually, when I talked to the person who is in charge of this data, they said that yes, undocumented students get categorized as non-Pell. So then your data is skewed to make it seem like non-Pell and Pell are very similar. Their graduation rates are very similar. And I was like, how is this? No one is pointing this out. Um, But that's because these people who are working with these data don't research students of color experiences and don't research how nuanced some of these things are that you have to be more specific than that. Like you would have to know, like either you are working with undocumented people or you are undocumented student yourself to know that nuance of like, we don't have help. We have Cal. And then that would be hard because FAFSA students get both Cal and Pell. So you would have to differentiate those things and it would be a lot harder for you. Um, and so th- those are the things that, some of the things that I pointed out in my thesis, like these are some of the challenges of like really looking at data. Like data is not going to tell you things. Why aren't you all reading testimonials? That would be a lot easier, but Again, it's because we, we place so much value in quali- uh, quantitative data that is not the most accurate. Mm-hmm. 
And then they put in administrative barriers, which I don't know what that even means. <laughs> um, probably within their um, positions, they might have limited time or resources. You know, like. Well, it's like the it's they're putting the effort where it's not really. Like, not only are we hiring people that are actually not the best people in those positions, but we also push out the, those people that are really, really good. We're like, oh, no, like, that's a threat because we're doing things differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not actually placing some time for those experts or those people. Like, we're not paying them enough. The people who are actually doing this work, we're not paying them enough. And the responsibility ends up going on to students and student assistants and to doing this work. Um, and they're scared of actually doing something different. I mean, this is why if you're seeing like this summer, I've seen so many more new administrative positions opening up. And when we're talking about furloughs and we're talking about like layoffs, um, they're not thinking about laying off administrators. Mm -hmm. They're not thinking about furloughing, you know, athletics. They're not thinking about abolishing their campus police. Right. Because they don't see that as an equity issue. They're like, oh, no, then, you know, our white students would be mad. They see it as a necessity. And a necessity to, you know, retain the students that they want to retain. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't see the issue of, like, if we're actually working with a CSU system that has so many minority students in general, they're not, they're not putting that priority because they're thinking donors are thinking about... Um, well, they well they cost too much money, and I'm like, not really. The other students are costing you more money. <laughs> you know, like privileged students are costing you money um, mm-hmm. because if any of y'all don't know, the honor societies or the honor students who get or the presidents honors people like they get a full ride. Mm-hmm. Um, and they like the other students aren't don't have that opportunity, so. I just included like any recommendations for practice. Um, I put recommendations for research. I think it's important to, for anyone who wants to replicate the study, um, um, any expansion of research participants, I think including like assistance, um, AVPs or things like that to, to be re- like um, interviewed. Um, looking at ways to reevaluate graduation retention data, like what are some like things that we can use to have more accurate data that centers minoritized students. Um, and this is all because of, I saw that there was just issues that I think it would be helpful to move forward with like these conversations. And I think for recommendations for practice, I included um, evaluation and training for administrative hiring. Um, we need to evaluate what we're looking at for administrators, like what kind of experiences, what kind of, you know, medals, what kind of, CVs that we're looking at, we need to change our, our way of like seeing who we're, who is an expert or who would be good at the job. Um, the second one would be hiring more scholar practitioners in both student affairs and academic affairs. And then also the inclusion of minoritized faculty and student feedback in these initiatives. Um, and to take them seriously, like why aren't we paying? Because I'm seeing a lot of like anti-racist task forces on higher ed they should commission and pay that as a consultation if they're asking black 
faculty and um, students and staff for their feedback. That should be a consultation fee. That should be like, here's a bonus uh, to paying you for the expertise that you have in retaining these students. They should actually be either paid, compensated in some way. Um, and also an inclusion of campus-wide definition of equity and equity gaps. Um, so it's a lot more specific. And also the evaluation and advocacy for state funding. Uh, we need to actually have these systems fully funded by the state and not have to rely on increasing tuition rates for students to pay for these gaps um, of lack of funding. And also for them to start being better at budgeting, you know, like they need to budget better and um, not put all this like burden on the people doing this work. Exactly. Yeah. And, and with the changes in administration and staff and all of these things, it all has an effect in the end into how it gets implemented. It gets, you know, altered, who do they include it. Like it all has many factors that ultimately the students are paying for either monetarily or through the new required things that they have to fulfill. And yeah. yeah. And then on top of that, like, um, I think the lesson from the previous uh, graduation um, initiative that the CSU was part of is that they blamed the 2008 um, recession because from there they didn't get full state funding. And so that's why their rates didn't really increase because of they actually increased tuition during that time period. Um, I see this, and this is why I included a COVID-19 section where I'm like, looking at this research project, like we need to really assess the repercussion that, you know, COVID-19 will have in our students and that we will, like, I don't want to see, which will probably happen is that the, the pandemic will be blamed and would be told like, this is why we have these cuts. This is why we have this thing. Like the, siempre en cada like four years of these initiatives it's replicating the same thing. I'm like, if you had learned from the previous thing, but it, it, it can't happen because one of the issues was that a lot of administrators were interim and left. There was a lot of shifts of an, an admin. So the people who first started with the initiative didn't end. And we even had in this time that our chancellor from the CSU was actually going to leave. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you're leaving and you're not even getting accounted. Like you're not, you're using these initiatives as an opportunity for you to, get promoted, but you never see the, the, the initiative full through mm-hmm. and you're not going to be held responsible for the effects of this initiative. Cause what we can blame is not only a, a economic downturn and lack of full state funding, but we're also going to blame, um, well, you know, someone else did it, you know, like some, it was someone else. It was a change. This person is new. They're trying to learn, you know, like all these excuses, right? Like all the things that we hear, like, and so I think this is really important for us, especially for people that are the stakeholders. Um, and I think us stakeholders is us, you know, the people that are most affected is holding them accountable in sense of we've heard this stuff. Like, and this is why I, I made it a point to make a research project on this because I kept seeing the patterns of these initiatives coming in. I'm like, it comes and goes. And the attitude that a lot of faculty had is like, oh no, like, and even staff, they're like, oh, that's another initiative. You know, who cares? Va pasar, you know, like, it's not that serious. And 
every new person wants to do something new. Like that happens in, in corporate businesses too, you know? And so they start in with this new flashy marketing, but never really see anything through. And, and they use these students. And this is what I'm saying. Like they are using these students to have these great funding to promote like this really sensational news articles that say that they're doing something different, but in reality, no están haciendo nada, nada diferente. And share with us um, how there's with this uh, your thesis and COVID, and then you know your deadlines are coming up. What did your advisor say to you to just finish it up and help him? Yeah, he just said, you know, what I appreciate from Juan, like from my. Dr. Juan Carlos Gonzalez, shout out to him. Um, he said, you know, because I've had a lot of more like women of color, like scholars, and their direction is very different from men. You know, like I've noticed he was more like, rápido, hazlo, ya, cualquiera, like, you know, like just move on. You know, like his, his direction was more like, move on, you've done a lot of, you know, work. Um, and so if I would have had, like, some previous, like, other, like, women of color faculty, they're like, do it, you know, like, try to, you know, go against the the current and just keep pushing through, right? And so he, he was a lot more like, you have four interviews, that's okay, just move on and just say it's a <laughs> pandemic and just graduate. Um, but he's like, the content is there, it's just that you didn't have that many participants, and it's going to be really hard to get some anyway, and I don't think it'll help you meet the deadline. So, and he was right. I'm like, I had to write during a pandemic. And I'm like, I think the important part is that the work and the structure was there. Um, the data, and this is why my recommendation is someone else do it. <laughs> but I think it would be really hard during a pandemic to actually write. And so if anyone is going to do a master's thesis this upcoming, you know, academic year, just give yourself grace. Um, Write as best as you can, write as much as you can, um, get help as much as you can. And I think for me is I advocated from the get-go to get an extension. So I worked with the person who was supposed to evaluate my thesis um, and my chair to get that extension because uh, that's that's what I, I needed. That I'm like, I don't think I'm going to be done in April. There's no way. I've gone through so much during winter break that I needed that extra extension. So I, I got myself an extension. I also said I was doing um, job interviews during that time too. So I was prepping for a lot of these presentations and I'm like, you know what? I need that time. So if you need that time, don't feel bad. Um, if it's a shitty thesis, it's all right. You know, like if you're going to send a, a, a thesis article or you don't have to publish it either, you know, like you could just write your thesis. You don't have to publish it the way that I did. Uh, in a database, but you can also use this as your writing sample. And then when you turn it in, just clean it up mm-hmm. and be okay. You know, no se va a acabar el mundo. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's just a learning experience. I think the thing that I gained the most is that I was able to do it. You know, I was able to do a project that I thought I, I didn't know how to do it from the beginning and it was overwhelming. Um, and I think what was helpful is that every chapter that I did, I wrote an outline of the to-do list of like what, little I broke it up for myself and for my literature review I grabbed flashcards I put the work cited on the top and I just put bullet points 
And I like laid the index cards out and categorized on how I was going to write it. So whatever helps you. I also paid for a software to help me with the coding. You know, like I, I gave myself an opportunity to try to make it as enjoyable as possible. And, and well, it wasn't really enjoyable to put this together to BH, um, but it was, um, it was necessary to me to create a structure in place where it was easier for me to write this. So for me, it was index cards. For me, it was the software that I bought um, that would help me with my coding instead of doing it all by hand. Um, I used for the, uh, what is it called when you um, transcribe it? I didn't transcribe by hand, girl. Like I was like, I was not going to do it. You know what I did? I used this free app called Otter. And it transcribed most of it with for me. Right. And so see, like these things that are easier, just like don't work as harder, just work smarter and try to use your network of people who have done thesis before or have access to software or even your, um, your chair, just ask if they have the software. And I'm like, Hey, just ask them like, Hey, could you like run it through? Or even the TA is like there, if you have a research lab, like they should have those equipments and software placed. So just advocate for yourself um, in some of these things. So you don't have to work as hard. I had a friend too, in, in, in my program that had also had a, transcription um service that she was able to do it just was much easier using the other one that i had because i had already transcribed them but um just utilize technology to your benefit that would have been so handy 10 years ago (laughs) pobre de todos los demás had to like do handwrite every word was such a dread I, I don't think I even finished it I just turned it in as like that I just took major quotes that I thought would be important well I think the transcription um one thing I learned from from my chair was that he's like oh I don't transcribe the thing he's like just listen to it find the themes yeah. write it down and then if you need a quote go back to the recording and just transcribe that that piece I mean, it was easier for him because he has already experienced transcribing and doing the coding. And so, I mean, it was in his, he's like, I can do a lit review. Me puedo levantar a las nueve, eat my cafecito, and then in an hour or two, I have a lit review done. And I was like, well, it's because you have practice, right? You just have to have practice. I actually transcribed by hand my undergrad research projects, and that was a pain. And so I told myself, because of that experience, I'm like, I don't want to make it harder for myself. Let someone else do the trend. And all I did was in the Otter app, and even there's a website for it, too. So you can use your web browser. There's a web browser website for it. Is that all I had to do was go back and listen to it and edit certain words that they said that that wasn't correct. Yeah, that's so much easier. So... Patricia, thank you so much for sharing all this great knowledge and information for any of our listeners who are thinking of, you know, programs applying this fall for master's programs or, you know, what to potentially look out for, especially as they're thinking of or maybe dreading this portion of their master's program, if this is one of their components uh, to do. Uh, It's definitely great to hear your tips, your advice, your takeaways, and, and, and how you approach your thesis. Is there anything you would have done differently? Yes, a lot. A lot. <laughs> but I think the biggest one is um, 
to have read and looked up more more resources that would help me on my writing at first because I think mm-hmm. because of the intimidation and everything um I think we were just like instead of like addressing it you just neglect it so right the advice that I gave to my new uh, friend who's doing a, a master's thesis was um, just write, stare at the blank, you know, do whatever you need to do to just like get yourself, it, it, reflect on what's making you not do it and just say, cause sometimes I would have things that I'm like, Oh, I don't want to write my lit review. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And I was like, wait, why do I not want to do it? I'm like, well, cause I've, my previous lit review experiences have been terrible. And so I'm like, what are some ways that I could help address it and move forward? So I read this book, the, the one that I, that I recommended, like how to write a master's thesis. And they gave me tips on kind of dumbing it down so it didn't feel so intimidating. Mm-hmm. I actually read other people's thesis and it was helpful to see because I had a, a, a friend who was in the same time, like she was in a different program and she shared her thesis and the way that she wrote matched with my writing style. And that was helpful because I was inspired through her work to write. So I think the important part is like, keep going, move, do something. See, it's that stuck, trying to identify how to like address it, but don't quit um, or ask for affirmations, ask for something, you know, but try to make it as easy as possible. And I promise that it's not as bad as you think it is. Uh, once it's done, ya lo terminas, you're like, okay, like now I can actually do a lit review. Now I can actually do a method, you know, like, if I were to do this all over again, it wouldn't be so hard. Right. right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Patricia. Um, again, we'll be providing all these links in our description. Um, please feel free to share this wisdom with others. And yeah, good luck with all of your projects. And, um, you know, you can do it. If anything, just know that Many of us have gone through this process or many of us will, and it's always okay to ask for help and lean on your support system. Yes, mediocre men have been writing thesis forever. Trust me, you can write something completely better. <laughs> you know? <Sure>. Pues muchos, <laughs> uh, muchos um, uh, like good thoughts sent to your way. Good vibes. <laughs> Buenas vibras y todo, um, and hope that, you know, you all find this episode helpful. Um, and this is where we close and see you all in the next episode. For our BIPOC business shout out, we have Prados Beauty. Prados Beauty is founded and created by Arizonian CC Meadows. Parados Beauty takes pride in creating beautiful and affordable makeup brushes, lashes, and much more. Their mission at Parados Beauty is to give back 50% of all profits to charitable organizations and communities in need. They are proudly a Chicana Native American owned business. We will link in their website where you can purchase their um, and look at their shop as well as their social media handles. So definitely check them out. For all of our listeners, you can email us at chicanacodeswitchers at gmail.com 
and send us your POC business conference and event shoutouts and listener letters. You could also record a listener message on Anchor app, and that way we can include your recorded message in our future episodes. Follow us on Instagram at Chicana Code Switchers and on Twitter at X Code Switchers. If you would like to support this podcast, you can Venmo or Cash App us at Chicana Code Switchers and or become a Patreon contributor. Thank you. And don't forget, switch the code. Don't let the code switch you. <laughs>